This podcast touches on some important topics regarding mental health and suicide prevention, which could be distressing for some listeners. If you or someone you love needs help, refer to our show notes for helpline numbers to get support. Hi, I'm Karen Cook, and welcome to At Source Podcast, a place where natural health and well-being are at the forefront of the conversation. Gain useful insights direct from the source from doctors, industry experts, wellness advocates and everything in between. This is a place for busy people who want to get to the core of health and wellness with information about the latest health advances and trends. In this series, we talk with and learn from inspiring leaders from all walks of life, touching on important topics that will help answer some of the key questions about natural health, well-being, fitness, and all things direct from the source. Well, a warm welcome to Lance Burdett from Warn International, who's joining me today at the uh, At Source podcast. Here we get to the heart of questions, issues, and information about every aspect of natural health and well-being. And well-being is very much the space that Lance is moving in um, here, and he's just come off the back of a very interesting touring show called Get Your Shit Sorted. Am I allowed to say that, Lance? A warm welcome. Uh, thank you so much for the opportunity. Yeah, you can say whatever you like. <laughs> so, look, I know that you've had a really interesting, uh, I'd call it a colourful background with a, a successful uh, career in the construction industry, then joining the New Zealand Police, where you spent 22 years policing with 13 of those as a crisis negotiator. Uh, you've got a master's degree in terrorism, safety and security, a graduate diploma in business studies, the list goes on, a diploma in policing and a graduate certificate in applied management. And more recently, you're currently completing a diploma in positive psychology and well-being. So a warm welcome. Thanks so much. I get bored very easily. I can actually relate to that. High boredom threshold. Yeah, when I say I've got a master's in terrorism, I have to actually say terrorism, otherwise it comes out tourism. (laughs) And there is just a little bit of a difference difference, there. Yeah, Yeah, well, we're going to hear a little bit about what that difference is uh, in our session. So I am looking forward to sort of drilling down a little bit more. And um, there's heaps I want to talk to you about, actually, because I know that you've had some incredible experiences in your career. Uh, But before we do that, I thought it might be useful for our listeners just to hear about how it all began for you. Um, yeah, well, I guess when I left, the reason I became a builder, to be honest, is I had no qualifications when I left school. Um, and trades, uh, you know, as my dad always said, get a trade, you can never go wrong. And so he was right. I, I got a trade, I uh, did an apprenticeship, did very well on that, and stayed in the building industry, even though I, I have to say I despised it. I did not like it. It's not an industry that's a nice industry, and it's even worse now. Um, and it was really difficult, and I wasn't enjoying it, and it wasn't until a couple of cops turned up on, on our building site, some things were stolen and got them out there, and I looked at them and thought, that's a pretty cool job. It's a safe job. It's, you know, work every day. It's different. I'm going to do that. And just at that time, John Banks had this thing called the Banksy 500 where they were going to recruit 500 staff, and I went, that's me. So at the age of 35, mm. I decided to join the police, and... Um, for an easy lifestyle, it kind of worked out, except um, sort of midway through my career, I ended up with depression from burnout. Uh, and that led me to this journey that I've taken since that time. So from 1999 onwards, just studying the brain, how it works, why it works, um, the terrorism part of the, the masters, I studied radicalization. So how can people become so 
obsessed with wanting to kill somebody, right? And so how the brain operates and how it functions. And then more recently, um, you know, seven years ago, yeah, seven years ago, I left the police to start this business at the age of, goodness me, I must have been 57, 58. Mm. Uh, to start a business and and never really looked back. Mm. And, you know, it is interesting because you joined the police at 35, you said, which Mm. is, you know, quite late really because it's kind of got big fitness sort of aspirations and it's Mm. a tough job. And I was just interested, I mean, you talked about it and I, (laughs) correct me if I'm wrong, but the sentiment sounded a little bit romantic, like the fun of it, the adrenaline kick, the, the, um, I guess that the drama of it initially appealed to you. Was there anything else about the the job that you felt resonated? The um, why? Well, yeah, I, I guess um, I, I, my my sole purpose was to. I mean, it's a bit cliche, but to help a community somewhere. So my dream job would be becoming a community constable in a small town, uh, you know, where the cops with the fire service and all that sort of stuff, right? So something that's very very cool and meaningful. But you sort of get sucked into this. Um, fight or flight stuff where you're going from job to job and um, the one thing that really impacted on me the most was was domestic violence and seeing the hurt that that caused uh, and it does cause real hurt and pain for both the victim and the family and it, it's it's destructive and it was eating me inside right I, I couldn't do anything about it it was just fire brigade policing and it wasn't until um, I conducted a traffic stop once um, with a man who had the full face tattoo, um, two young babies, you know, two young kids in the back, and uh, no warrant of fitness, no registration, you know, gang member. Obviously, clearly he was for, for the, the uh, uniform he wore. And um, at that point, I, I sort of I wasn't sure whether it was fear or whether it was something that inside me that went, you're, "What you're doing is wrong." But anyway, I, I said to him, "You know, we're going to take your car off you. Um, don't worry, your kids will be okay. We'll put them in a home. Um, you'll probably do." two to three years and you'll be back on your feet in no time. Or you can take this car home and your kiddies. You can make sure they put their seatbelts on and never drive this car again. And he looked at me and I just, I get shivers when I think of the look he gave me. He said, are you serious? I said, absolutely. Was I, was I scared? Probably. I didn't want a gang member with me. What am I going to do with the kids? And I, I look, I never saw that guy again, but it changed my life. I drove away from there going, that made a difference. Yeah. And that's when I realised why a cop should become a cop, to make a difference, not to make a difference from a superficial but in people's lives. Because when you your action you take at a scene will change for the better or for the worse. Mm, and you right. need to think about it. And the key word in that too I hear you saying is that you know you wanted to help. Yes, you wanted to make a difference, but there's that strong, it would seem, helper instinct in you, which is, you know, that space that you're moving in now where you're coaching and helping and assisting, mm. um, you know, people in the workplace to be better versions of themselves. Mm. I suppose that, you know, has probably been with you from, you know, the beginning right through to now. Uh, just just in terms of, because, you know, some of our audience today won't be across um, the work that you've done in the police and some of those high-risk missions, and I know there were many. Um, I just thought maybe you could pick one and maybe just share something about one of your high-risk missions. Uh, tell me about the character of it just as an overview, and then maybe next, something that was a highlight for you, a career highlight. 
Yeah, well, I mean, the one, the obvious one that sticks in my mind is is the uh, Napier siege with Jan Molina, uh, and I run the negotiations. So we had three negotiation teams. At that time, I was the lead negotiator for New Zealand Police. So they call it the National Advisor. So flowing down to to Napier and to run that. Uh, now. That was a long one, wasn't it? It was like 40 hours, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It went on for a long time. Now, that's a person who's in a heightened state, uh, has already uh, killed one uh, police officer and shot two others plus a neighbour. Really heightened state, fired over 200 rounds into Napier, closed down the city. Uh, And so we had to try and engage with that person. I've never been more proud to be a negotiator than in that moment when uh, at some point we managed to engage with him and the negotiator just dropped straight into the, this is what we're doing. It's just like we do in training and everything just flowed. And um, over the next 40 hours or so, we tried everything we could, right? Now, the thing about that is, and this is what cops don't understand uh, unless you're a negotiator, the job of a negotiator is to get everybody out safe. And unfortunately, or just as an occurrence of what happened, um, Jan Molina shot himself. And for many of us, that was a failure, um, where others might see it as, as success and, you know, just deserts. No, because our, we wanted to hold him to account. He's got to go and, and pay for what he's done. Yeah. And that's the way we work. We save a life and then you're responsible for your actions. And so that took its toll. Um, but really it was it was an opportunity to work with how can we get out of this to work with people and so his partner at the time uh, Dalwin what a lovely lady you know beautiful lady and she said look I'd love to help and and we spent must have been 20 hours with her getting to understand him and getting to understand her and and she helped us all the way through and I know that she's she said in the media that she absolutely loved the opportunity to do that um, didn't work out the way we wanted, but um, or how she wanted, or how too. she wanted, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Uh, but it gave me an understanding more of of why I do what I do, and that started me on a real journey of discovery. Of, I mean, if people are going to get into these these states, how can we stop it before then, right? So, it's all about you know you hear about the ambulance at the top of the cliff rather than the bottom, but no, it's not the ambulance. It's what about the school at the top of the cliff? There, you don't need an ambulance at all. So I always ask the why, why. Go back one step, go back another. Why do people, oh, it's the drugs that did it. Okay, so what caused the drugs? What's behind all of this stuff? And I think that's where I come from these days is, you know, my, my, my mission, if you like, um, is that we are kind to ourselves as we are to others. Yeah, and you do talk a lot about internal chatter. Oh, and, yeah. you know, we're not as kind to – if we, we spoke to people the way we speak to ourselves, right, <laughs> that it would be a different you – know. We would probably be arrested. Yeah, <laughs> which is which is an interesting concept. And I think when you, you know, just recently in your tour, you touch on that. And I think that really resonated with a lot of people mm. uh, about how we talk to ourselves. So in terms of a career highlight, I'm just waiting to hear what this might be. It's the simple things for me. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I got the opportunity to go to the FBI. I mean, that was a real buzz. I, I qualified as an FBI negotiator, so sent across to Quantico and spent two weeks with uh, in training and fact qualifying as an FBI negotiator. I mean, those were cool. Um, I ran witness protection for two and a half years. So I got to, to travel the world learning about that stuff and doing things. But I think the one thing that really got home to me was around, and it's, it seems insignificant, no one even understands this, but I developed a process along with the coroner, the then coroner, on how to attend sudden 
deaths in infancy, right? So sort of your cot death. Because uh, as part of, I, I worked for the coroner investigating um, the suicides and all sorts. And it was, uh, I noticed that the family had to ask these questions because this is what the pathologists want. Do you smoke? Did you have drugs? When was the last time you had alcohol? I mean, all of these, was there a heater in the room? All of these questions that you're asking parents who have just lost a loved one, you know, their, their little baby, and plus you're going to take the baby away, you know, and it's just horrible. So I developed a program. It took three or four years to get together, and there's now something called the P47A. It's a police form, and apparently it's still being used today, of how you can just look at, I mean, cops, look around, take some photos. You don't, is there cigarette butts in there? They obviously smoke. You don't have to put this blame onto people, and and for me that was the, one of the one of my highlights, to be honest. Yeah. Mm. So you sort of turned a, a difficult situation into something that was sort yeah. of constructive and better yeah. going forward. And again, I guess with with crisis negotiators, so um, doing a lot of work with crisis negotiators in prisons, and I, I ran a. I, um, George Baker was somebody who killed Liam Ashley in the back of a prison van, you know, strangled him. And he went a bit crazy this year and kidnapped somebody. So my role was to go in there. In fact, I had to negotiate with him. And of course, you can't negotiate with cops. They can see you from a mile away. Mm. Um, and so I managed to talk somebody else into doing it. But we developed this process and it ended okay. Um, but that's when I started on the journey of why should cops be put in the position of having to negotiate with a prisoner when it's it's just it doesn't make sense. So uh, I ran the very first ever um, negotiators course for prison officers, mm. which is yeah. you know I mean it makes sense. But. It does make sense, <laughs> yeah. And some and I, what I've noticed is sometimes the things that make the most sense are missing. Uh, it's <laughs> <laughs> common sense is not that common. No, right? that's yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, really, really. But I, th- I think I come from a different lens, and that's mm. um, anyway. So that's why a lot of um, boards and that these days they have somebody, one person that doesn't know what the, the board does, what the organisation does, so they can bring a different lens. So all I did yeah. was bring a different lens and just ask questions. Mm. So you sort of shared um, some sort of life and death situations with the uh, the siege, the forty hour siege that you were just talking about before. Um, I'm just interested in how you switch off. I mean, you, you go to these, um, and you st- it still sounds like you're working in a pretty sort of heavy space. Um, so how do you go home and switch off? What, what do you do for a bit of, you know, rest? For me, it's rest? the gym. Yeah. I just get in the gym. I look, I'm, I'm 63. Mm. Uh, so do, do I lift weights? Yes. Do I lift heavy weights? No. Uh, but it's, for me, it's, uh, so every person I think should spend 30 minutes a day with themselves. doesn't matter what you do, whether it's jigsaw puzzles, whether it's reading, whether it's just doing something where you're with yourself and alone uh, is very empowering, right? So you don't have to learn things. You don't have to, you know, playing a musical instrument. All these things are actually for your spiritual self, right? So spirituality is in everybody. doesn't necessarily have to be prayer or religious. It's just something where you're centering yourself and so for me it's getting in the gym uh, I've got a very lucky got a bit of a set up at home and I just get in there for 30 minutes in fact an hour have the TV going I just get lost and I I'd race myself to see how fast I can get a set workout done right yeah or today I'm going to see how heavy I can lift yeah. or and it's just so you're into personal bests every day Lance oh. <laughs> eBay's oh 
type A, right? Yeah, I'm listening um, to this. I, I can relate personally to this, but I, I get a lot of I get a lot of pushback on the fact that I don't have a lot of mindful rest oh, look, in my all right, world. Mindful all right, rest. So I'm let's talking, go there. I'm talking to somebody akin here. Let me You're tell like you me. about that. Tell me about that. You and I, if we sat there and for 30 minutes and did nothing, would be absolutely crawling up the wall. It is finding what works for you. So if I could use a personal experience. Uh, go on a holiday every year as much as I can with my wife. Um, she likes to, you know, she said to me once, you need to rest, you need to, you know, and and, and let's get yourself, um, we'll, we'll get one of those little cabanas by the pool, right? I lasted, I think, <laughs> 10 minutes and I went, I'm going to see how many times I can swim that pool underwater. Not just swim it, underwater, right? Hold my breath. Got out, sat there another 15 minutes and I looked up and there was a, a mountain. I went, I wonder how long it would take me to get to the top. And so, look, it's what's right for you. You know, we're told that we should rest and we should smell the roses. Well, that for me is wrong. It hurts me, yeah. right? I, if I sit still, I've got lots to do. Um, yes, so what was my burnout about then, Lance? Well, my burnout was uh, I continue to do the same thing. So I continued to work and not do something different other than work. So if if in, when I was in the police, instead of working long hours, if I'd worked a normal hour, hour and shift and then done something else when I got home, perhaps write a book or perhaps do something else, that would have been perfect for me. You know, What were you doing? Uh, just working. And I was working at home on the computer, working um, out what I'm going to be doing the so next day really at work. So it was really the same so thing. So it was the same mm. thing. And this is the key, right? It's finding what works for you. And for each of us, it is different. We don't have to do mindful meditation. We don't have to do all of these things that we suggested. If it's, oh, I got told. Are you busy? I constantly busy. Oh, I just never stop. Yeah. But do you get people saying to you, what are you hiding from? Oh, I, well, not I so much. I get a lot of that when do I you? talk Look. about being, like for me, you know, rest is to go for a run and I'll put my music That's on it. and I love to, you know, move to music. That's and it. But I'll often get, well, what are you What are you hiding from? That's what are you running from, Karen? Nothing. And I'm thinking, I'm really trying to think about it. I don't think anything. Um, but it's it's interesting because a lot of our guests that have come in to talk here on the series, the At Source podcast series, talk about the pause. And they talk about powerful decision-making that comes when there's the pause, when there's the silence. <laughs> okay, let me ask you this question. Have you ever been for a run, a jog, for, in my case, old shuffle, uh, and you suddenly have an awakening, oh, that's what I'll do, right? So that's your pause. Now, uh, when you exercise, a couple of things happen. One, you burn off adrenaline and cortisol, so you're going to sleep better, right? So you're not going to go in a heightened state. Endorphins get dumped in your brain. They numb pain, so therefore uh, you're going to feel a lot better. But the third thing it does, it reconnects the limbic system in other words, we're, we're worrying and thrashing around our hippocampus and stuff, trying to consider what's going on in life. Back to our prefrontal, which is our executive decision-making. So you've gone for a bit of a run, a bit of a walk, and you'll suddenly have this idea, the aha moment. That's reconnected it, right? And so that's how you have your pause. Yes, meditation is good for you if that's what you want. But I could not sit there. I could do it. Would I enjoy it? Probably not. 
yeah, I'm 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 with you. I've I've been once subjected to a <laughs> about a half an hour um, meditation session, and I just remember starting to toe tap and wiggle and jiggle, and ah. I just couldn't stay still. So you've absolutely nailed it, and it's refreshing to have this conversation, just because it, you know obviously each um, conversation is a little bit different. Um, can, can I let, let me? And I think it's an important point. When you're doing something you don't like, it's worse for you than doing nothing yeah, at all. That's right. Right. So I'm running and not. Not liking it, I'm hating it. I, I delight, I love it now because I know what's going on. But somebody said you have to run, so I got out and ran, and I just completely hated it. Guess what? It's like thinking I should give up smoking while you're having a cigarette. So you're worrying about having a cigarette. Well, they don't go together. Just have the cigarette, yeah, or do the worry. Yeah, guilt-free pull, cigarette. Have a guilt-free. Oh, yeah. Well, that's yeah. it, right? Yeah, yeah. That, that's it. And so yeah. it's knowing what works for you. The thing that I talk about is is trial and error. And so it is what's right for you. And we're told we should. Let me tell you, you shouldn't. What you might want to do is find out what's right for you. And while you're experimenting, you're keeping your mind occupied, you're trying new things, and that for many of us is enough to yeah. stop what's going on at the moment. And I think I'd be interested in your thoughts. I think you touched on this actually um, in your recent tour, you know, Get Your Shit Sorted, that adults – and correct me if I'm wrong, it could have been somebody else, but I think it's you. You talked about adults sort of don't investigate like children. They don't move sideways like children. They tend to, um, we tend to be a lot more static. Like we don't jump, we don't skip. I mean, that's just an analogy for the, the way that we've sort of slowed and we become less on the journey. Whereas if we were picking up cheerleading and picking up piano and we were picking up all these things so that we, we would keep evolving but as adults because of pressures and stresses our involvement is a lot less we we kind of grind yeah. down and get a bit static yeah and I, I think that's that's you know we get into a routine which is a rut r-u-t in that order so we talk talk about rituals getting into ritual but uh it is it is continuing that journey of discovery mm-hmm. um so our brains to remain neuroplastic we have to challenge them in different ways Otherwise, we just, the neural pathways, right? So at the moment, this is what's happening in the world. Mm. We're being thrown a curveball and we don't. So we're a species who looks forward to the future based on our past. None of us have been through COVID before, so the the subconscious is going flat out. Now, how has this affected people? Well, I can tell you, if you've got one or more of these things, if you are um, feeling more tired than ever before after midday, if you have a headache at the back of your neck, if you want to go to bed an hour earlier, if you're falling asleep straight away or having trouble getting to sleep, if you are having weird dreams or not dreaming at all, if you are waking up in the morning not thinking that you've gone to bed, if you have a dry mouth, is the biggest one most of the day, Welcome to COVID. Mm. It's the subconscious going, we're in fight or flight at the moment. Violence has gone up 20% around the world globally because of this, and it's been studied. So have divorces. Well, that's all part of it. It's that's because right. we are in fight rather than flight. Mm. And so just understanding that and overcoming those things at the moment. So we've got to keep adapting. Yeah. The world is never going to be the same, so we must get used to constant change. And now more than ever, right? And and the way to do that is what? Try different things. Yeah. So get the brain used to dealing with uncertainty. Get the brain used to doing trying new things so that it doesn't get into that pattern. Yeah, that's right. It's no, it's it's good, and I think um, I'm hoping that you know people listening to this today will reflect on the importance of being agile. Right now, because I think our world has changed probably 
COVID's really set a very different rhythm. I think that, you know, we're just going to probably be facing more and more super viruses over time. And, you know, we're all going to have to be um, inoculated to travel and mm. our passports are going to look different. Um, and, you know, we, we need to kind of get with it and, and probably learn some tools to be able to stay resilient in these um, times. I guess most of the people you work with in the corporate environment have, you know, won't have to face the life or death situations that you've sort of had to sort of work with. Um, but stress is a, a bit of a killer. And in the workplace, it's pretty massive and it's the norm. I guess I'm interested, obviously, your work at Warn is about helping um, corporates with tips on being in control when everything else is sort of falling apart. Would mm. that be right? That's a lot of good work. Yeah, it is. It's, it's understanding how the brain processes information as a start. Um, so you talk about the word stress. Well, that's Latin for stretched. So that's enough for most people. Oh, I'm just stretched, right? So just going back to the origin of words. But at the moment, um, organisations are going through massive disruption and it's, it's, it's causing lots of concern with people. But So what I do is try and show them ways of how do you adapt to an ever-changing environment. So how do you start now? What you, um, can I just take you back yeah. to the word disruption? Because I'm just interested in the angle here. Are you thinking about restructures? Are you thinking about like just reducing headcount, redundancies because of COVID? Keep going. Okay. Keep going with all of that, right? Yeah, so right. it's happening everywhere. I mean, mm. I got thrown under a bus the other day uh, at, a, at a presentation. Hi, we've got Lance here. He's under this and this and this. Uh, he's here because we're about to go through a restructure and some of you might <laughs> uh, lose your job. Here's Lance. Oh, great. <laughs> and I'm like... Awesome, dude. Yeah. Thanks so much. That's yeah. awesome. And that was probably news to you. And that was, I didn't know. And no. I'm like, oh, so I threw him under the bus. I said, right, whose first thought was, will I have a job? Put your hands up. 100% of the room put their hands up. And I looked at him and went, you're welcome. Um, this is what we're in. We're in this fight or flight or this whole fear. So organizations do have to change. We do have to disrupt things. But understanding this, look, let me go back to the real basics of what neuroscience tells us. Every piece of information that comes into our head, whether it's a thought or what somebody tells us, is tagged with an emotion, which then makes us behave. So uh, what I might suggest is mental ill health is in many families in the world. Um, if it's in your family right now, you're thinking of that person and because of that, your mood has dropped. Welcome to the brain, and it's doing that every microsecond. Now, to simply get yourself out of that drop in mood, all you have to do is take a big deep breath through your nose, diaphragmatical big deep breath, and then sigh. And when you sigh, you cannot think of anything. I'll tell you, your brain goes blank. Yeah, somebody told and, me that sighing is really important. You, you sigh or die. Yeah. Uh, it's, so it's, it's, it's the vagus nerve that goes up from, the vagus nerve starts from behind your ears and in, in your brain and comes down through the spine and goes to every organ. At the moment, people are sighing all over the place. The reason is the, the, the vagus nerve senses when the lungs aren't producing enough oxygen for the brain. And so it says sigh. These alveoli in our lungs are collapsing and not reinflating because we're chest breathing, not diaphragmatically breathing. So that big deep breath and then sigh collapses the whole lot in your next big breath. You, you, after you do a sigh, you will know that you go, <sighs> and you get that rush, you go, whoa, what was that? That's just the oxygen going to your brain, wiping all, and even a yeah, negative so, thought. So it it's can not change. the negativity, right? That no, 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 no. It's not, that's exactly right. So, and that's how I discovered it by accident because I'd sit down every night and sigh. And my wife happened to say to me, something like, Are you bored or, um, or you know, are you overworked or something like that? And I said, um, 
bored? No. Um, and, and so I'm trying to recover, thinking, how do I get out of this? And I went and did it. I said, it's a science. You know, we did some research on it. And certainly the science is in. So what's a yawn? We think it's because we're tired. Yes, but it's because we're tired, we're not getting enough oxygen. Mm. So you need more oxygen than a sigh would give you. So you open your mouth and you yawn to get a massive amount of oxygen. And that's why we yawn, because of the oxygen level. When you understand the way the brain works, that gives you a great opportunity. Now, most, uh, even CEOs, you know, they'll sit in my program and they'll, they, oh, you know, this is not really for me. This is not really for me. And I do that little exercise and they go, wow, what happened? Clear thoughts, able to withstand. And so, I, you know, just sigh every hour or so. Take some breathing. Mm. You know, Maslow nailed this, didn't he? Food, water, shelter, air, sleep, reproduction. We go for those things. So if we can, at the moment, drink lots more water, to overcome the dry mouth, which will tell our brain why drinking water hydrates it and we're not in fight or flight. And if we can learn to breathe through our nose diaphragmatically more often than not, that will help us all at the moment. And then if you want to, you know, I ask, I, I do the, the, the food, how many people lined up or queued to get food during the lockdowns or before it. Well, many people did. Mm. Because we need these things, right? So, well, Maslow, those days they didn't have brain imaging, but what they did have was he studied people. Now, I'm I'm no longer surprised I say to people, how many of you cleaned your homes like you've never cleaned them before, right? During, oh, it was because I had time. Was it? You were still working, but... It was a choice, really, wasn't it? That's choice, and the choice was I need a clean home. It was prioritised. It's prioritised. And then sleep. How many of us went to bed, sleep an hour early and hoped to wake up the next day that it wasn't there? Mm. You know, how many people go for sweet or or fatty foods during that lockdown or wine? Let's put that in there as well. Mm. Many people did, right? Mm. Because that's what we always did, ripe berries, et cetera. And so once we've got that, we feel safe and secure, then we can connect. So in the work I do around um, suicide prevention, intervention and postvention, particularly postvention, uh, I get people to focus on three things. So they want to restart their life. People who've survived you know, an attempt, fantastic. But they're still in the same. In fact, they're worse. Because what people don't understand about that is that, oh, they're all good now. No, they're not. Um, they're still, in fact, they well, they're not terrible. good because they've probably got the insight no. to look back and, and slightly unpack what's happened, right? That's it. And they feel like they've now failed again. And so just going back to that basics of change your diet, change where you live, and go back to your original sleep patterns – is how we restart our lives. When you say change where we live. So it might be that the circumstances you're in, you haven't got your own home or you're living a, in a place you don't like. So it's a fresh start. It's, it's a fresh start. and Or just clean your house. You know, there's the science on just cleaning your house, which is what people did. They threw stuff out. They wanted to unclutter their – the best way to unclutter your mind is to unclutter your house. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good start, mm. right? That's a good start. Very good. And so – There's some simple things that we can do at the moment to adapt to this ever-changing world. So breathing and drinking water is the the basic start. And that's the basic start that we've always known about well-being. Well-being is about what we eat, what we drink, and how we sleep. Thank you so much for tuning into part one of our episode with Lance Burdett. If you're enjoying this conversation and want to find out more about how the brain works, keep an eye out for part two. We will be speaking to Lance about the dark side of the brain, amygdala hijack, and all things related to mental well-being. At Source Podcast does not accept any liability for the results of any actions taken or not taken upon the basis of information in this podcast or for any errors or omissions. 
Those acting upon information do so entirely at their own risk. We recommend that you seek professional assistance from certified doctors for your health and well-being issues.